This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years. On Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. It is 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson on this side of the Atlantic. On the other side of the pond, she's finally shown up. It's only Wednesday. Is <laughs> Alex Steele. I decided. I decided, you know, I got rid of my second vaccination. I got that 18 hours sleep, did my panel yesterday. So I thought I would, you know, grace you with my yeah, presence. I'm excellent. I'm, I'm glad you finally decided <laughs> to show up. Um... And a big day, like a big day for the States, big day for yeah. earnings. Not a big day for commodities, but you can't have everything it's in this okay. world. We got Biden, we got yeah. earnings, and we got the Fed. That's here in the U.S. But, you know, the market's not doing a whole lot of anything. But honestly, yeah. Guy, just the amount of money that has the potential to come out of D.C. is truly tremendous. Um, we'll talk about that later on in the, pro- in the program. But yeah. I do wonder if it pushes back investors' expectations of peak growth in the second quarter, which would be a, would definitely be a change in the market, especially when you have to deal with then the tax part of it, um, key, front and center in that value versus growth debate. Absolutely. To be honest, the biggest story over here is Boris Johnson's curtains. I so am so up of- for talking about that. I am like into this conversation. Like, nobody actually knows what the flat looks like or what he's done to it. So well, kind of there's this anticipation that that he spent all this money, and I think the biggest question everybody wants to answer is, like, does it look any good? Well, but okay, it might sound like a lot of money. You you redid your house what ten years ago? Yeah. I I just redid some parts of an apartment that I, that I bought, and a closet, a closet was for quoted shoes, for me for your shoes for my shoes thirteen thousand. That's what the quote was. For a closet, okay. you can see how 200k is going to rack up real quick. Yeah, absolutely. The, the The big question is, has he broken any rules? But I guess if you're if you're watching this story in the states, you're like scratching your head, going, "Yeah, but every time we get a new president, like the whole of the White House gets redecorated." Also, and that's know, just a given. Breaking rules is much less fun than talking about curtains. But um, Charlie Pellet's here, and he's kind of looking at me like, "Guys, <laughs> no, I, I, I gotta go. <laughs> I'm here to read headlines, and then I got other jobs." No. I'm here. Delighted that you're back, and there's a lot going on. Do want to begin with that story, though, uh, regarding the Prime Minister's residence. Johnson facing an official investigation in whether he or his party broke election law by failing to declare the funding of works to refurbish his government residence. The Electoral Commission, which regulates political donations, announced the inquiry amid questions over the, whether Johnson took an undeclared loan from a political donor to cover the cost of refitting his Downing Street apartment. Now, this probe is a blow to the Prime Minister. It comes just eight days before local elections across the country. European lawmakers have given their approval to the post-Brexit trade accord with the UK, marking the final step in the ratification process and the end of four years of political brinkmanship. And just when you thought air travel in a pandemic couldn't get any weirder or worse, another favorite retail option is about to disappear at the airport. Dixon's Carphone will be closing its stores in airports, betting that a travel recovery won't bring enough customers to make up for a UK decision to end tax-free shopping. The electronics and mobile phone retailer operates 35 Dixon's travel stores in the UK and Ireland, the majority of which are located at Heathrow. That is the latest from the news desk. Back to you now here in New York, Alex Steele. Well, something that we've been talking 
talking about uh, for the last couple of days, uh, when you have really strong earnings and a muted market reaction, uh, is a disconnect between the two. And you can really see that uh, in earnings central uh, out of Europe. Outlook is positive. We've been talking to all the executives. Here's a snapshot of how they see the economy right now. We're executing on our strategy. We have a great quarter. We enjoy uh, something which is uh a new incentive fee, which is a sustainable growth. It doesn't represent a change in strategy, um, rather a, a, a strong execution of that strategy. We can see, of course, a stronger recovery in uh, more or less uh, all our markets, but also segments. You're seeing incredibly uh, strong demand in, in America and in China. We expect the stabilization to continue. Innovative medicine should be firing on all cylinders. China's uh, oil demand is now above pre-pandemic levels. America is almost back to where it was. We expect Sandoz to stabilize, which enables us to keep our full-year outlook intact. Financial performance from the company has uh, exceeded our expectations. I think we are very confident about what we're seeing in terms of customer activity. Now we are delivering 15% uh, on this first quarter, 9.8 without one-off. We're much more optimistic than we were a couple of months ago at full-year results. We're still seeing a, a healthy level of activity in the, in what, in the corporate finance businesses. So all that sounds really good, Guy. And I, I guess the question is, how do you know what's actually baked in? At least here in the U.S., we just are not seeing the pops to some of these monster numbers that we're getting. Yeah, I think to a certain extent it's similar over here in Europe, uh, though there are some clear exceptions. Um, and today, Deutsche Bank, for instance, up over 11% delivery hero in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, very strong trading there. You got some OK numbers with some tough comps from Sanofi. It posted some good numbers today. We just heard uh, from that company on the call, the CFO. Um, and, and you are getting a reaction, but broadly at a headline level, I, the stock 600, all of the major indices here in Europe are just going sideways. And I think while you are getting some some gyrations in terms of single stocks and you are getting a bit of a reaction, in aggregate, it's not enough to move the dial. And I think that is the question that everybody's trying to figure out right now is what therefore is going to be enough to move the dial? Do we need to get past the Fed? Do we need to get past Joe Biden's big announcement tonight? Do we need to get past the GDP number tomorrow out of the United States? Do we need to get past the PCE number, the key inflation number for the Fed Friday? Mm. And then once we've kind of digested all of that, then maybe actually kind of the, the earnings narrative comes back at that point mm -hmm. and, and, and does have an impact at a headline level because you kind of put it all together and it could paint a really positive picture. Yeah, it and but I'm kind of wondering though how where the catch up potential will be most. The catch up or the catch up? The catch up. Uh, although I totally hear you. I hear I love ketchup. Are you a ketchup person? Oh yeah, massively. Yeah, I mean it's huge. Ketchup My daughter's sandwiches. huge ketchup. Yeah. Um so I get I get hungry when when I think about that. But in terms of ketchup, we were talking about this earlier on the show also is that um uh, we've heard more calls about uh, Spanish equities that they could have more ketchup potential. Uh, Sean Darby over at Jeffries last week uh, upgraded the index. Yet, they're super exposed to Latin America. They are super exposed to tourism and then the economic recovery there. So that's like the three pillars with the exception of India, that you probably don't want to have a lot of exposure to right now. Yeah, and, and broadly, I, I've heard that I've I've watched this movie before mm -hmm. when everybody gets super excited yeah. about Europe, and and there was a bit of it last year. Was it the year before? But I, it, and everybody's like, Europe's that executing really well for, for like six yeah. weeks. Yeah, everybody's like super excited about Europe, and then it kind of fizzles out a bit. And I'm hearing I. 
you and I are having a lot of conversations with strategists at the moment. Like, I, Europe looks really cheap. Europe's mm-hmm. got loads of cyclicals. Europe is going to be the place to you. You want to play this trade, and I get that with the big multinationals that have global exposure, and and maybe they will see the benefits of this kind of huge U.S. spending and general recovery that we're seeing around the world. But but I do worry, and I, I kind of my muscle memory tells me that I shouldn't get too excited about Europe because I because everybody's always kind of we, we go through this narrative time and time again. It's, this is Europe's time, and at some point it will be. Will it be this time? Maybe I don't know. But I guess you know my question too is then well well where else do you go? So you have the emerging market story, okay, sure, but then you have what happens in India and then uh, South America, for example. I, I think, you have I, the U.S., but that's already probably priced in. But you you say it's priced in. I, there is there is some evidence that suggests actually, if you look at value stocks in the in the states and you look at their earnings potential, then the earnings potential it, it, the the cheap stocks have greater earnings potential in the states than they do in Europe. So I I don't think it's quite as straightforward as saying you know all the values in Europe and all the all the decent trades in the states have already been done. Um, yes, that's why I don't run money. Yeah, nor do I. Yeah, so just talk about it. Yeah, well, we just talk about it and judge other people for doing it, but that's fine. Yeah, that's what we do. The catch up trade. Yeah. <laughs> Much more coming up. We're going to talk about curtains and Boris Johnson. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. He goes on and on, Mr. Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it. So, there you go. That's Boris Johnson um, talking about uh, (laughs) curtains. So, Guy... Wallpaper, wallpaper. Sorry, wallpaper. Wallpaper also, quite frankly, is quite expensive. If you get the peel and stick, it's a little bit different. But if you're going to get professionally installed wallpaper, that is quite expensive. I can't believe that Boris Johnson has a particularly strong skill set when it comes to putting wallpaper up. So I'm assuming that he got somebody else to do it. Right, sure. And, you know, there's got to be price inflation because everyone's redoing their home. So I'm just saying that, you know, the money kind of makes sense. But... um, it's a big deal either way. Uh, and Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, is here to explain why. Okay, so I'm the Luddite, right, from the U.S., who's like, so what? The guy's decorating some stuff. Uh, wh- what is this emblematic of? Well, the first thing to say is that the it, you know, it isn't a big deal that he's redecorating the prime ministerial flat. The problem here is that he hasn't disclosed how it was paid for. So what Boris Johnson has said is that, 58,000 pounds or so, which is the excess over what the government has given him for the refurbishment. So they gave him 30,000 pounds. He was allowed to spend that. Another 58,000 pounds were needed, too. So it must have been some very nice wallpaper had to be spent. Now, Boris Johnson has said that he has covered those costs. So there should be no big deal. Why is everyone talking about it? But the problem is that his former top advisor has suggested that actually it was a party donor who initially paid the bill. Boris may have repaid it. Nobody knows exactly how this happened. And the problem is that, you know, while it's not against the rules to receive donations, politicians have to declare them so the public can see, you know, who's given them money, whether it could influence their decisions. And the government, well, Boris Johnson in Parliament today refused to say who paid the initial bill. And now we have a watchdog. The Electoral Commission has launched an investigation into the funding of the works, um, saying that there are reasonable grounds to suspect that an offense or offenses may have occurred. So that has ensured that this is just not going to go away, even if the broader public aren't quite sure 
uh, here as in the U.S., why it should be such a, you know, a, yeah. a big deal. It's a, it's a question of sort of propriety, and it's wrapped up in this broader allegations of sleaze. And, well, that's, that's, uh, the, that's, that's the point, isn't it? I, arguments rarely uh, uh, sort of occur over kind of what people are really upset about. You usually kind of argue about something else, but what you're really arguing about uh, is, is something else it's entirely. It's like marriage. Precisely. Yeah. But, but more importantly... This, I, Alex used the right word, I thought, at the beginning. This is emblematic of something else. And and it strikes me that while we're arguing about this, we're not talking about Greensill, and we're not talking about all of the other allegations that are swirling around this government at the moment about impropriety, about donors getting uh, undue access, uh, about um, people being able to influence uh, ministerial decisions. Is that what this is really about? I know we're arguing about curtains and I know we're arguing about wallpaper, but is this, this is a bigger conversation about what is happening at, right at the centre of government. Well, that's what it should be about. It's what the Labour Party is, you know, really trying to make it about. And Keir Starmer was very effective today at Prime Minister's questions um, and and calling attention to this. And remember, you know, there have been uh, lots of questions and allegations of cronyism around uh, supplying personal protective equipment during the pandemic. You know, I think the question for voters, and we are going to have local elections here on May 6th, so there will be an opportunity for voters to register their discontent with this uh, if it's really cut through. And the question is, if people knew that Boris Johnson, you know, has has had in his past many controversies involving, uh, you know, playing playing fast and loose with the truth, does this go beyond what they already know about Boris Johnson or what they yeah. suspect or what they think is acceptable given the circumstances, um, you know, of this period of time. And and that's where I'm not quite sure it's cutting through. I mean, it's a big buzz in yeah. the bubble that is Westminster mm-hmm. and in the media. I'm not sure that the wider public have really, um, you know, it, it, that it's really changing their view of Boris Johnson. We'll see for sure yeah. on May 6th. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of like, can we go outside? Can, can we go to our job? Like that's my um, point. Um, yeah. Alex, just worth noting, Therese, thank you very much indeed. The UK is buying extra doses of Pfizer for booster shots mm-hmm. later this year. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 18 minutes past the hour. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Let's talk about commodity prices and the price of food. So this year... The price of agricultural products has absolutely skyrocketed. Corn up by 38%, uh, coffee up by 14%, um, lumber is up by 79%, but you generally don't eat that. Uh, but for food prices, the big question now is does this get fed through to the consumer to excuse the pun? I'm almost turning into Alex Steele here in the ability to produce puns. Um, <laughs> Does it get fed through, Alex? And and if you're a big food company like Mondelez, think Oreos in terms of uh, the products that it produces, how do you deal with that? Well, Alex and I caught up with Dirk van der Put. He's the CEO a little earlier. I'll start with the hit of the input costs. Uh, there's basically four areas where we see an effect at the moment. Uh, one is in those agricultural prices that... Uh, that guy was talking about. We see that in wheat, and your pun, uh, and and uh, we see that in cocoa for our chocolate business. So wheat for our biscuit business, cocoa for our chocolate business. We also see it in packaging materials, and we see it in uh, transportation. 
And then as it relates to our own conversion cost, cost of our plants and so on, obviously there's some extra COVID costs, which are okay for the time being, but that's an extra cost we're seeing. If, if you look at that package of, of inflation that we're having and you compare that to previous years, it's higher than it normally is. Every year we have to deal with this from different uh, sources sometimes, different ingredients, but it happens every year. This year it's higher. Um, and it's different for every company how much higher it is and how you deal with it. So in, in our case, I would call it manageable. And so we, we think, yes, we clearly can see the effect, but we, it will not uh, result in a major shock for the consumer in our case. Now, how do we deal with that? Um, we, we try to um, make sure that uh, the pricing is not sort of a line pricing and your Oreo suddenly jumps from 399 to 499 it's it's more um, uh, a very uh, uh, diverse effect called uh, revenue growth management which is you play around with how many times do you promote uh, what type of promotions do you run uh, what do you do with the size of the packaging and things like like that so it's it's a it's a less obvious effect to the consumer and that's the way we are planning to deal with it We've already done some of that. We've done some in North yep. America. We increased chocolate prices in Europe. Uh, we've, we've done uh, uh, Brazil, Mexico, some of it in, in Southeast Asia. So we, we've already implemented uh, a lot of it because we, we saw that coming uh, last year. And then the other thing we've done last year is as we saw it happening, we extended our coverage and we hedged. Uh, yep. and we're very disciplined in that approach. So. Uh, that's so, a little bit the overview of what, you, of what we do. How do you determine where you're going to put your focus? If you are seeing one area where input costs are rising, do you focus on a different area? Does, does this input cost inflation that you're seeing kind of the, affect the emphasis you put on different products, SKUs? No, no, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, it might change the pricing that happens on different uh, products. But uh, in the end, we are trying to do what the consumer uh, wants. That's, that's critical to keep our business growing. So we, we don't try to steer in, in specific directions. Um, it, now, if the effect is extraordinary, we might have, have to do that. But in general, I would say we try to make sure that every single one of our brands is at, at the right price point where the consumer interest is high. And mm -hmm. the, the, the whole secret about this is, yes, prices have to increase, but do you do it in a way that the interest of the consumer remains there and your volumes continue? And can you keep on investing in your business uh, so that you can support your brands? It's, it's sort of that balance that we need to find. I'm talking about balance. You mentioned you're doing a strategic review of the gum business and that all options are on the table. Can you give us some perspective as to how much that category weighed down on your result in last quarter? Well, uh, for instance, to give you an idea, uh, our biscuit business in a two-year stack, because because of COVID, we're trying now to compare uh, two-year uh, growth rates. So our CAGR, yearly growth rate for the last two years in, in biscuit is 7.5%. For chocolate, it's 6.5%. For uh, gum, uh, particularly in developed markets, it's minus 16, minus 17%. Wow. So clearly very affected. It's only, gum is only 5% of our business, and we're talking particularly about gum in developed markets, which is only 2% of our business. But okay. gum, consumption of gum 
before uh, COVID was already not a very vibrant category. So you have to ask yourselves, okay, where are we going? And are we paying sufficient attention to something that's 2% of our business? And then we didn't capture this. Guy asked him why people are eating less gum, which may have been the most interesting answer to something that I didn't know that I cared about, which uh, is a smoking thing which he mentioned, um, and also other options that's less offensive, apparently, than just, like, chewing gum in someone's face. Yeah, it's a phone thing as well. People are thing. Because there's... I, I, I did slightly question that, but he, but Doug was talking about that. He basically said people spending more time on their phones, you've got the phone up to your, to your head, you don't want to be chewing while you're doing that. Now, I think probably people have... They look at their phones, actually don't spend that much time talking on them, they actually spend most of their time looking at them, so I'm not entirely sure that that is the case but certainly I, I i the correlation with smoking seems pretty logical mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like people used to smoke and then they would chew gum to to make their breath smell a bit better yes as and I, I guess as smoking goes down uh, and I, one of the other stories i noticed today actually i think the biden administration is looking at banning menthol yes which is i think that's been around for a while though digress well it's yeah. also because you know menthol stinks i'm sorry if you smoke menthol but those aren't real cigarettes that's just basically little pieces of glass like cutting your lungs and then it smells weird it's just a whole i used to smoke can you tell uh for many years so so this is a topic that i understand quite well but anyway gum is gum is on its way out yeah. which i guess probably means well, cleaner also, floors as well quite frankly if you're wearing a mask like i'm the only one offended oh, yeah, by my the, breath that, <laughs> yeah i but but it's true if you're wearing a mask you don't want to be chewing gum do you no, because I mean, like, how does it? First of all, like, if it gets stuck, also the mask is moving all over the place. Like, that's just that's just a recipe for grossness. Anyway, gum apparently on its way out. Um, up next, we'll refocus our attention away from gum, bad breath, and gum, towards what is happening <laughs> in the states. Plenty of hot air. Yeah, we've done curtains and we've done gum. Next, we're going to talk about <laughs> Joe Biden's massive, massive expansion plan for the U.S. economy. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. 5.30 where you are. It's 12.30 here in the U.S. Three things that are happening is earnings continue to come in quite strong. Some get rewarded, some don't. We're also waiting for the Fed announcement and then the subsequent uh, press conference in a couple hours. And third, looking forward to tonight at 9 p.m., President Biden will be unveiling uh, his America work plan. I mean, we're talking like almost $2 trillion to support uh, working class families uh, in America. Huge, huge, huge shift uh, in priorities and in money and in spending going out the door. So markets, what are they doing? Not a whole lot. So within the S&P, particularly in the, in the tech sector, it's a big push and pull between Google and Microsoft. Microsoft, killer numbers, not good enough. It didn't beat the whisper number. Boom, there you go. Stock is not holding up as well. Google, though, continues uh, to uh, reward investors. So that stock is higher. So that's the push and pull. Yields kind of modestly drifting higher. The dollar right around the lows of the session. Uh, energy and oil getting a bid, but that's an inventory story, not really a macro story. Uh, for the like of it. So that's sort of the picture here as we head into the afternoon here in the U.S. And for your other headlines, here is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Developing story on this side of the Atlantic, specifically here in New York, New York. The FBI raiding the 
former mayor of New York, uh, Rudy Giuliani's apartment. According to the New York Times, the source for the story, prosecutors obtained a warrant as part of an investigation into whether the former mayor broke lobbying laws as President Trump's personal lawyer. The Times says federal investigators executed a search warrant at his apartment today. He became President Trump's personal lawyer, stepping up a criminal investigation into Giuliani's dealings in Ukraine. Again, this according to the New York Times, New York Times citing three people with knowledge of the matter. Prime Minister Johnson is facing an official investigation into whether he or his party broke election law by failing to declare the funding of works to refurbish his government residence. The Electoral Commission, which regulates political donations, announced the inquiry amid questions over whether Johnson took an undeclared loan from a political donor to cover the cost of refitting his Downing Street apartment. EU lawmakers have given their approval to the post-Brexit trade accord with the UK, marking the final step in the ratification process and the end of four years of political brinkmanship. And thousands of people at a mass nightclub rave in the UK this week will be the test of whether live events halted during the pandemic can reopen at full capacity. As planned from the end of June, the two-day event in Liverpool is part of a national research program, which so far appears to show people are happy to be tested for the coronavirus to secure entry to large-scale events. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. There's kind of, I don't love any, I, I love everything about that story. You, you do uh, or you don't? Raves are, raves are meant to be experimental, but not this way. <laughs> I mean, get tested, go to a match pit, see what happens. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing. Exactly. Perfect. Um, okay, in the markets, we're talking about earnings. Uh, one stock that isn't getting rewarded because it may probably shouldn't is Boeing. That stock down by over two percent. The big takeaway was that the cash burn was a lot worse in the first quarter uh, than analysts were expecting. So we turn to Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering deals in industrial companies, and I have to say, one of the smartest people that I know uh, that works at Bloomberg. Um, all right, Brooke, it's been a couple hours since the call. What are some of your takeaways? Sure. So, I mean, I think what really stood out to me is the extent to which they talked about China. Um, this isn't necessarily, you know, a new uh, fact. Boeing is very dependent on the China market for a lot of its uh, airplane production. That's where a lot of the demand is coming from. It's a huge air travel market. And, of course, China has not yet given its blessing to the 737 MAX. So Boeing cannot yet deliver any of those planes that Chinese airlines have already ordered. Um, and, you know, press about this on the call. The CEO said, look, you know, there's a new administration. We wanted to give them some time to uh, get their feet on the ground and, of course, take care of this coronavirus crisis that's happening. But we do want to call attention to the fact that this is a very important market for us. It's important to get this moving again. Yeah. Um, and it was just really interesting to see them call that out. They've got a geopolitical problem as well, don't they? I, the the they, relationship between the U.S. and China is getting worse. This is a massive and expanding market, and, and basically the politics who end up are going to end up either ceding this market to to Airbus or ultimately Comac. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the concern here, right? Especially if you're an investor. And Airbus has taken a different uh, approach to China, even beyond the geopolitical situation. They've put facilities on the ground, final assembly plants, to try to, you know, help ingratiate them with those Chinese customers. And, and look, it's worked. I mean, they, they've certainly benefited from the 737 MAX grounding um, and all of the issues that Boeing has been having. So it's certainly something to watch. And it does get back to, I mean, Guy, you asked me this yesterday when we were talking about GE and, and Raytheon earnings. Why are we not seeing, you know, some of the benefits of, of the pickup in U.S. airline traffic in these companies' numbers? And 
these are global companies to the extent that the U.S. carriers just aren't. And, you know, Boeing depends on China a lot more than Delta does. Um, And I think that that was a really important reminder today. So Airbus tomorrow, what are you looking for then? You know, it'll be interesting to see what the divergence is. I mean, that's sort of been the the story of this is that, you know, things have not been great for Airbus by any stretch of the imagination during this crisis, but they've been a lot better than they have been at Boeing uh, because of Boeing's self-made problems. Um, There were a couple interesting questions on the call about Airbus, um, one about market share, how does Boeing sort of regain ground versus Airbus, um, and then another about production problems. Um, Obviously, Boeing has had its fair share of issues on this front, um, and the CEO sort of got a little testy with the analysts and retorted, well, Airbus has had problems as well. Um, and so clearly, uh, top That's never mind. a good sign when like, no. that's your response. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, he made the point that, look, these are big, complicated problems uh, or programs. Excuse me. You're never going to have uh, these be problem-free, which I think is accurate, but probably not what you want to hear as an airline passenger uh, thinking about planning your next flight. So... No. I, I'm talking to Guillaume Forey tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, London time. Um, and, I, and I guess the big question, I'm curious maybe to kind of put the uh, put the flip side of that question to him, but but the question for Airbus is, is the ramp they're trying to make in terms of the narrow bodies. How, how better positioned is Airbus? How much more wiggle room does Guillaume Forey have? He's not only got the A220, the old, the old Bombardier, but he's also got the kind of a, a much stronger lineup in the narrow bodies as well. I, what is the opportunity to take advantage of that? He, he's got the short range nineteen, but he's got it all the way through to the to the twenty one long range. I, the, the Boeing, uh, sorry, Airbus finally seems to be in the right place at the right time. No, I would absolutely agree with you. And I think the long range is really going to be key here. I mean, when you ask anybody who follows the aerospace industry, they expect wide bodies long-haul markets to come back last. That's something Boeing reiterated today on the call. And if that's the case, and you have airlines that are strapped for cash looking to save money where they can, I mean, that that long-range model is going to be really appealing to a lot of carriers. Um, And, you know, the other thing that's benefited Airbus is they did not have the cancellations that Boeing had on the narrow-body front because, of course, it was a lot easier to get out of your 737 MAX contracts when that plane has been on the ground for a long time. And so, you know, I think they'll get questions on the ramp of the production rate, and those are valid questions, but certainly they're in a lot better position to talk about ramping that back up than Boeing is. Boeing reiterated its goal of getting eventually back to, you know, a 31 uh, rate per month on the max, but the timing of that is very dependent on China and what happens there. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, that's just not a problem that Airbus has. Um, the other point that I did want to point out from Boeing's call is he was asked about, the CEO, Dave Calhoun, was asked about what the next plane for Boeing looks like. And he mm-hmm. talked about he doesn't think the differentiator is going to be propulsion technology, that we're not going to get a significantly more fuel-efficient engine to differentiate the next model. That's a mm-hmm. huge shift from the past. And he's talking about you know engineering and design really being a distinguishing factor. Now, of course, it's very much in Boeing's interest to talk about that. Mm-hmm. If you think they have a market share problem with Airbus, if they can make some sort of improvements to entice customers, yeah. that, that will help close the gap somewhat. Brooke, no doubt we'll talk to you tomorrow. Brooke Sutherland at Bloomberg Opinion. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio at 9 p.m. Eastern time tonight in Washington. The President, Joe Biden, will be speaking to a joint session of Congress. He's been invited by Nancy Pelosi. It is an opportunity 
for him to put his case for the huge spending plans that he wants Congress to approve. Not only are we talking infrastructure, uh, but in some ways, human capital, human infrastructure. That's the American Families Plan that he's pushing now and, and basically wants the rich to pay for. Alex, this is a, a huge moment, mm-hmm. potentially one of the biggest shifts in the American government's relationship with the U.S. economy we've seen we've seen in decades. It does, though, feel a bit like an opening gambit. Like, this is him coming and of kind course. of saying, this is what I want. We then get down to the brass tacks and figure out what he actually gets. But nevertheless, like in some shape or form, the bulk of this is going to be going through. Well, yeah. And, and also, there are some things that were definitely left out, uh, like salt, which a lot of the Democrats uh, are yep. sort of hell-bent um, Explain on, salt. on bringing back. Uh, so basically, uh, they... What, how do you define a state and local, local tax? Yeah. A cap on state and local tax right now, if you buy a house, is $10,000. And then if you remove that, um, you can deduct more of your mortgage payments uh, and your taxes, which, if you live in really expensive uh, states, can be quite huge when you're but doing you your can, tax returns. It's basically a deduction from federal taxes, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, like, so I have a mortgage and I can just deduct up to 10000 But before that, you could basically wind up affording a, high, a more expensive apartment because you could deduct so much more from your taxes. So you can get so much more monthly from your paycheck and not have to pay back taxes in it later. Yeah, I think we in the UK don't really appreciate just how high property taxes are in the United States. Huge. And 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 if you're living in a very expensive city like New York, this is huge for you. New Jersey, Connecticut, the whole thing. So they're like hell-bent on you got to repeal salt uh, if you want to get this deal through. So um, there was that that was kind of left uh, out hanging. Uh, Michael McKee, Bloomberg National Economics and Policy Correspondent, who I don't know if many of you know, covered D.C. for a very long time and has seen this kind of horse trading before. What happens now? Like what's the horse trading jam? Well, the first thing that the President Biden has to do is make sure he's got the Democrats on board. Um, Bloomberg News reporting today, uh, they went around and basically asked all the experts whether he can get the American Families Plan through on reconciliation, the uh, the the system they used to get through the rescue plan and they hope to use on the jobs plan uh, where they can only they can get through with 51 votes um, because you can only have things that are germane to the budget specifically spending and and uh, taxing in the reconciliation bills and so they think they can get that through but then they still need the 51 votes so they've got to make sure that uh, enough of the Democrats agree and that's where you come up with the fight over salt and things mm-hmm. like that uh, and uh, They'll have to get. Uh, th- there will be horse trading and 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 work on that. Then uh, it probably goes through uh, without any Senate support from uh, Republicans. But they might get a few Republicans on the liberal Republicans, although there are very few of those. I was left, like, who are they on, on the House side? <laughs> in terms of, can you just give me a sense of how big a shift we're talking about in the structure of the U.S. economy that is being pursued here? Uh, I would say Calvin Coolidge to FDR, um, as is right, like, or, or or flipping, you know, uh, yeah. Ronald Reagan's impact on the U.S. economy. When Reagan came to office, uh, the the catchword was that, uh, and his famous phrase was, "Government is not the solution; government is the problem." Mm-hmm. And we operated on that basis for a very long time. Uh, I'll take you back to 1976 and and uh, even 1980 when Jerry Brown was running for president. He was the governor of California and talking about the age of limits, and there's only so much we can do. 
And uh, that was uh, on both sides of the aisle, kind of a philosophy. Uh, And it was the end of the New Deal. Now we've come to a point where we have seen enough excesses from that in terms of inequality and uh, productivity falling and growth falling that there's a movement in the other direction. All right, Mike, stay with us. You're going to have a lot more because the Fed's going to have to tackle all this, too. Like if you have that kind of growth or that kind of money and somebody coming into the economy, like how are they going to say stuff like, we're going to keep low rates forever? Um, We'll break that down with Mike. Uh, This is The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So at the beginning of the show, Guy and I said that the story is really earnings, Biden and the Fed. So Bloomberg Uh, Michael McKee is still with us. And I wanted to kind of bridge the gap from our last conversation to this conversation um, in that the data has been so, so strong. We have potentially, you know, trillions of dollars coming in from D.C. How does Jay Powell categorize the economy? Like he's going to have to acknowledge this data, no? Yeah, they're going to say the economy is is uh, picked up noticeably or some language like that. Nothing, no qualifications, no adjectives that would get people worried about it. But uh, they have to acknowledge that things are a lot better. But uh, because this is Wednesday and the next inflation report that the Fed follows doesn't come out until Friday, they can still say inflation remains below our 2% target. When's Jackson Hole? Jackson Hole is the uh, usually the last weekend in August. Getting excited. So we've got. A, we've got. A, <laughs> I am going to hold hold my breath, cross my fingers, whatever uh, that they actually have it in person. It would be very nice to get back out to Jackson. There's a, there's a story at the terminal today that bets around Jackson Hole and an announcement that is market moving in a significant way are increasing. Yeah. How do you How do you <laughs> handicap that risk? I saw that. Um, I. Don't at this point. Uh, it'll a lot will depend on how the economy develops. It Jackson Hole developed a reputation for that when Ben Bernanke went out in the middle of the Great Financial Crisis and used a couple of speeches there to lay out sort of what the Fed was going to do next. Now, no Fed chair had done it before, and nobody has done it since. Um, and they don't really want to. It's not that kind of a setting but if it's but but it may it's kind of the only thing in that time period that's going on because it's august and everybody's gone off on vacation so it does provide jay powell a venue and it will get a lot of attention Uh, so if he needed to say something he could but Mm -hmm. my suspicion is they're going to try to avoid that so if if jay powell wanted to start setting up the markets to talk to talk about inflation about tapering, so they're not even talking about, about talking about, it, about yeah. yeah whatever that is. So if he wanted to start setting up the market, what are some of the word changes that we could see or, or listen for? Uh, that's going to be a good question because um, anything he says is probably going to be taken as a hint that the Fed is thinking about thinking about it. Um, it might be that there is a discussion about the uh, timing and pace of tapering or something like that. Uh, No decisions have been made but that kind of thing. Hmm. The markets are going to reprice immediately on that, and they know that. So it'll be a combination of how they can tie the latest economic data into something like that. So the markets sort of say, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's only Hmm. logical, as opposed to, oh, my God, what are they doing? How united is the Fed? 
I'm starting to hear kind of re- quite big regional differences in the states being reported in the numbers. I'm quite starting to see that in some of the data. Do you well, think that's going to be an issue? No, I don't think so. I think the Fed is is uh, very united. There may be some people who want to see the Fed move a little bit earlier, but I don't think there's enough of a sentiment that you would see anybody particularly dissent at this point. Um, Inflation has been so low for so long that even the people who were regarded as hawks have kind of surrendered to the idea that dynamics are different and we're not going to see uh, uh, acceleration massively. Uh, If we start to see some signs of it, maybe they go back in that direction. But right now, they're all kind of within a narrow range um, on the same page. Um, If we were to take a shot every time someone says transitory, (laughs) how many shots would we have by the end of the presser? (laughs) I I don't think I'd get through it if I were were doing that. Mike has at least one wooden leg. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I mean, the only limitation on that is going to be whether the reporters give up when he says it the first one or two times and uh, don't try to press him on it. Um, right now, uh, most economists would agree with the idea that it is transitory, uh, the, the kind of price increases we're seeing, uh, because they're based on short-term shortages as opposed to uh, an economy running so hot that we're running out of stuff. Uh, so Does that, does that jibe with, with what? You're saying, I just anecdotally, trying to get hold of stuff at the moment is really difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sitting here in the UK. Just I, th- there are lead times are increasing massively. Trying to get a plumber to fix something is becoming more difficult. Um, just, just that sort of narrative seems to be gaining traction at the moment. That there is a shortage economy, and I'm seeing it everywhere. And I'm just wondering whether, kind of, this narrative that this is temporary is something that sticks. Just anecdotally, I, we tried to book somebody to come and do stuff in our garden. I, it's a, I, we, we can't book them for a year. Yeah, but really? uh, yeah, that's wow. because nobody was working in anybody's garden for so long. That no, that's not. No, everybody have wants been. it. Yeah, precisely. Uh, but no, everybody's got to be. It's, it's kind of because people are spending more time at home. They are spending more and more. They're, they're doing more and more stuff with yeah. their homes. But but even kind of just there are just there do seem to be shortages of stuff. Well, the problem is going to be, and the Fed, this is the way the Fed looks at it: is you can't get somebody to come work in your garden. Um, so the garden guy goes, "Well, I can raise my prices," and then Guy Johnson says. Well then, Mr. Bloomberg, I need a raise because I got to pay the guard. Well, that, okay, more. so that's what that's what happened. But at the moment, it feels like it's a you just can't have it for a while. But ultimately, right. I can't believe that it doesn't ultimately turn into that. Well, I mean, we've got a computer chip shortage, and the computer chip shortage exactly. is is causing a shortage of new cars, which is leading to a rise in price for used cars. Well, they're going to solve the computer chip problem, and then we're going to have more new cars, and the demand for used cars will fall, and probably the the prices go down. So uh, that's the way the Fed's looking at it right now. It's not something that's um, we just can't make enough cars because so many people want them that even if we could get the parts, we can't make enough. But what makes it? You have like thirty seconds. So how does it get sticky? Like, what's going to make me call up my boss and ask more for more money? Uh, when you see uh, prices rising for a period of time, a broad range of prices rising for a period of time, not gas prices, but uh, the things that you need to buy for your household every day, uh, the shoes for your daughter, the you know, food, uh, food is always a big issue for people, those sorts of things. Hmm. Hmm. We'll see. Hmm. Anyway, hmm. at some point I'm going to get my garden fixed. Um, Can't you McKee? do it? Don't, don't you, you know? No, this involves diggers. 
Oh, 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 that, that, that's a big thing. I'm not that, that, it would be fun, but no. Um, no, no. Mike McKee, looking forward to the coverage later on. Looking forward to the question. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>